uh, they do change the course of our life. Listen to this story. In a supermarket, Curtis, the stock boy, was busily working when a voice came over the loudspeaker asking for a carryout at Register 4. Curtis was almost finished and wanted to get some fresh air and decided to answer the call. And as he approached the checkout stand, a distant smile caught his eye. The new checkout girl was beautiful. She was an older woman, maybe 26. It's not such a great part of the story there. We'll move on. And he was only 22, and he fell in love that day. Later that day, after his shift was over, he waited by the punch clock to find out her name. She came into the break room, smiled softly at him, took her card and punched out, then left. He looked at her card, Brenda. He walked out only to see her start walking up the road. Next day, he waited outside as she left the supermarket and offered her a ride home. He looked, looked harmless enough, uh, she thought, and so she accepted. When he dropped her off, he asked if maybe he could see her again outside of work. She simply said that that wasn't possible. He pressed, and she explained that she had two children and she couldn't afford a babysitter, so he offered to pay for the babysitter. Reluctantly, she accepted his offer for a date for the following Saturday. That Saturday night, he arrived at her door only to have her tell him that she was unable to go with him. The babysitter had called and had to cancel, to which Curtis simply said, well, let's take the kids with us. She tried to explain that taking the children was not an option, but again, not taking no for an answer, he pressed. And finally, Brenda brought him inside to meet her children. She had an older daughter who was just as cute as a bug, Curtis thought. And then Brenda brought out her son in a wheelchair. He was born a paraplegic with Down syndrome. Curtis asked Brenda, I still don't understand why the kids can't come with us. Brenda was amazed. Most men would run away from a woman with two kids, especially if one had disabilities, just like her first husband and the father of her children had done. Curtis was not ordinary. He had a different mindset. That evening, Curtis and Brenda loaded up the kids, went to dinner and the movies. When her son needed anything, Curtis would take care of him. When he needed to use the restroom, he picked him up out of his wheelchair, took him, and brought him back. The kids loved Curtis. At the end of the evening, Brenda knew this was the man she was going to marry and spend the rest of her life with. A year later, they were married, and Curtis adopted both of her children. Since then, they've added two more kids. So what happened to Curtis the stock boy and Brenda the checkout girl? Well, today... Uh, they're known as Mr. and Mrs. Kurt Warner. Uh, they live in Arizona where he retired after playing quarterback in the NFL. Uh, some of you football fans will remember that Kurt led the St. Louis Rams in Super Bowl 34 to a victory. He was also the NFL's most valuable player twice and the Super Bowl's most valuable player. Uh, the Warners are very, very vocal about their relationship with Jesus. Here's the point of that story. Brenda's uh, life took a very unexpected turn when she encountered a man by the name of Kurt Warner in that grocery store that day. There was a woman in the Bible, and this story reminded me of it this week. There was a woman in the Bible who had a very sordid past. She had done some things. She had been involved in relationships which obviously weren't healthy and weren't good, and she encountered a person by the name of Jesus that changed her life. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. You'll remember we were in John chapter 3 last week, and we talked about an encounter that a man named Nicodemus had uh, with Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be in just one chapter further in chapter 4. Now look with me there uh, at verse 1 where John writes, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, 
Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. It's interesting, by the way, just kind of a side note this morning, that parenthetical note that Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, is impossible to reconcile. For those of you uh, that are theology students, it's impossible to recognize with the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Uh, That is the doctrine, those that say that baptism is a part of uh, salvation. It's impossible to recognize because surely uh, the Lord Jesus Christ who came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10, would himself have done whatever was necessary to bring sinners to salvation. And if baptism would have been required, certainly Jesus would have been involved in that, would he not? Yet the text is very clear that uh, Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Verse 3, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, now I don't want to just pass over this particular part of the text this morning and, and get to what sometimes we commonly refer to as the good stuff. So let me give you just a little bit of background here. On his return to Galilee, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And there were various ways to get where he was going. It was not geographically ne- uh, necessary that uh, that, he, that he go the way that he went, but he did so in spite of the fact uh, that it wasn't the most direct route. Uh, the road through Samaria was shorter than the coastal road or the road on the east side of the Jordan, which is why many Jews uh, normally traveled on it, especially during the time of major uh, religious uh, festivals. But so great was uh, the Jews' disdain for the Samaritans that the stricter Jews actually avoided going uh, through Samaria altogether. They preferred instead to be uh, to, to go the, the, the longer distance than to be defiled by the Samaritans. And they would cross the Jordan River, River and travel up its east bank uh, through the largely Gentile uh, region of Perea. And then they would cross back into Galilee, north of Samaria. And Jesus could have easily done that. I think it's interesting, though, as we read a text like this in Scripture, that we recognize that Jesus uh, doesn't do the easy thing, and he doesn't do the easy thing because it has been divinely decided that he was going to have an encounter that day with a woman. And so he was compelled to pass right directly through Samaria, right directly through that group of people that uh, most Jews did not want to associate with, right through that group of Samaritans. And he was going to enter into a certain village, not to save time and to save uh, steps of travel, but because he had a divine appointment there that day. Look at verse 5. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom, which was Israel, and Sychar was near the parcel of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Uh, Many years later, Joseph was buried there after Israel conquered the land under Joshua's rule. And it was a very important site, not only to the Jews, but it was important to the Samaritans as well. And so here we have it, the stage is set for Jesus' encounter. Jesus was in the right place at the right time for an encounter that was part of his father's will. Uh, He was in reality keeping this divine appointment that he had made before the foundation of the world. That's just an incredible thing to me, and it should be to you as well. That God has divinely planned those appointments. Uh, I come in contact on a regular basis. I had a few this week 
where it was just so obvious that God had divinely planned my path to cross this person's path at a particular moment because God had something that he wanted me to speak into that person's life or something that he wanted them to speak into my life. And so the text goes on in verse 6, so Jesus being wearied from his journey was sitting by the well, and it was about the sixth hour, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus is tired. I like that, don't you? That he's tired. How many of you are tired this morning? How many of you were tired this week at particular moments? I take great comfort as a human being in those words that Jesus was weary. Jesus was tired, and so he was sitting by the well. And there are so many different variables to Jesus' ministry. I love the fact that while he was uh, all God, he was all man, and he subjected himself to the same things that you and I face on a daily basis. I love that. He was tired. He knows what it's like to be tired. I get tired. And uh, even when I don't walk from uh, Judea to Galilee, I, I get tired. And make sure also that you notice the time of the day. It's the sixth hour of the day. Now, it'd be easy for you to say, well, that must be 6 a.m. Well, remember, uh, back uh, during Bible times, they, uh, they didn't look at time the same way that we did. They looked at the day beginning at sunrise, which would have been about 6 a.m. And so if it was the sixth hour of the day, this is about noontime. And so you can imagine it's, it's, it's very hot outside. Notice also that the disciples weren't with him. I think this is important. He sent them to get some food. Now, it kind of strikes me, maybe it doesn't you, and you've read this text before, but it kind of strikes me as funny that his disciples are not with him. Uh, maybe because I've pondered and studied it this week, and, and maybe you'll need some time for it to sink in, but there are 12 disciples, and none of them at this particular moment are with Jesus. Why? He sent them all to get food. Now, it kind of reminds you of the joke, you know, how many does it take to change a light bulb, those kind of things. You're asking yourself the question, okay, how many disciples, really, does it take to go and get some hamburgers? Does it take to, to run to Taco Bell and get the $2 meal deal? How many does it really take? Obviously, it takes at least 12 disciples to do this because Jesus is alone. Now, we can only speculate uh, that Jesus might have said to them, hey, why don't you guys go and, and get some food? And they're going, well, we only need to send, you know, just two. And Jesus, no, no, no. All of you go. Now, sometimes as I'm reading through, through Scripture and certainly as I'm preparing to teach you, I tend to go off just a little bit and I begin to ponder and think about why Jesus might have done that. I, I really think that Jesus was just tired of them at this point. You ever do that? Honey, why don't you go to the store and just uh, get some lemon juice? Why? What are you making? Nothing. You just need to go get some lemon because you want him out of the house, right? And I really think that that's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He's just had enough of them. They're driving him crazy, and he's the son of God. These people, these guys are asking him questions, and I think sometimes he's going, really? Do you really have to ask me that question? You don't know that yet? And so every once in a while, because he is the son of God, and he's trying to demonstrate patience and being long-suffering and gentle and kind, I think he just has to send him away. That's really the only uh, thing when I speculate that I can imagine why Jesus sent all 12 disciples away. And the text says that Jesus is alone. They're buying food someplace. Now, first, when we read this, we think, so he's tired and he goes to the well and 
he wants to get a drink, and he realizes he doesn't have a cup or a bucket, and so he politely asks a woman for a glass of water. What's the big deal? Well, there are several things that make this an interesting uh, story. Uh, what was unusual in particular about this is that this woman had made uh, such a long journey to get the, to this particular well when there were other sources of water that were closer to her village. But, but, but she, for reasons that I think are beginning to become evident, she uh, decides to go to this well. I think it's because she was an outcast. She'd rather walk the extra distance. She would rather go there in the heat of the day uh, than to go there early in the day when she would have to be around other people. Because you see, she wasn't part of the in group. She wasn't part of the in crowd. We're going to see that here in just a moment. She wasn't one who would sit there and socialize with the other women at the well. You women can only imagine, right? I mean, guys, we know, right, what they would do. If we lived back in the day when uh, you had to go to the well to get your water, which you don't have to do, all you got to do is turn on the tap and there it comes out. But if, if you did, we know what you do at the well, okay? You wouldn't just go get the water and then return home. You would all sit around the well, and you would just do all the things that it is that you do and all the things that you talk about, what you did the night before, discussing the upgrade, whether or not you were going to do it to your iPhone because the iPhone 5 had just come out, uh, you're getting a new minivan. You would discuss a bunch of things. As men, we'd go, we'd get our water, and we would go home, but not the women. They would sit around and they would talk. And I really believe this woman who is coming to the well knows that and she knows she doesn't want to be caught in that type of a situation because she's not part of this in group. And so she makes this long trip to this well in the heat of the day to get water. Look at verse 9. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Here's what you need to know in order to fully appreciate what's happening in this encounter Jesus is about to have with this woman. Number one, men did not speak with women in public, not even with their wives. You need to understand that culturally. In fact, there were a certain breed of Pharisees that were so extreme about this. They were called the bleeding Pharisees, I learned uh, this week. Because they didn't want to lust, so every time they would see a woman in public, they would literally put their head down. And, and, and if you study who these Pharisees were, because continually they were putting their head down in public, even as they were walking around, they were constantly running into things. Isn't that hilarious? And so they were called the bleeding Pharisees because they were constantly bumping into things. That's how extreme... They took this in this particular culture. Rabbis did not associate at all with any woman who was considered to be immoral. And as we will see of this particular woman here in just a moment, uh, she certainly was no Mother Teresa. Number three and most significant was that Jews did not associate with Samaritans. The worst insult, in fact, that you could give a Jew was to call them a Samaritan. 
You know, back in the day, I remember when I was in high school and it was kind of the thing. I don't think it is anymore, but, you know, you talk about somebody's mom. Do you, some of you guys remember that? You know, you just talk about, you know, I often wondered, you know, you don't know my mom. Why are you saying that about my mom? But you would say different things. You guys don't do that now, right? High school guys, you don't talk about people's moms. Greg, do you talk about people's moms at school? You don't do that anymore? That's good. That's good. But back in the day... We used to talk about people's moms, all right? And so if you really, if you were going to talk about somebody's mom and you were going to insult them, you'd say, your mom's a Samaritan. Well, that would be like the lowest blow that you could give them because of the disdain that the Jews had for uh, Samaritans. Even more uh, astounding at this particular fact was that Jesus was willing to ceremonially defile himself by drinking from her glass there at the well. In fact, I learned uh, in my study this week that that word uh, dealings at the end of verse 9 literally means to use the same utensils. I love that Jesus was giving us, by the way, in this particular text, a model uh, for ministry to other people. You see, many of us really only want to reach out and we really only want to associate with Uh, those that look like us, those that might uh, talk like us, those that, uh, that, that we like, those that are similar to us socially or economically. And whether we are willing to admit it or not, I suspect that many of us would never have started a conversation with this particular woman that day at this well. And yet here's the irony in this whole story. Here is the God of the universe in human flesh, and he is the one. The disciples are off getting sandwiches, tacos, whatever it is they're getting, and yet Jesus is the one, the God of the universe. He's going to break all of the cultural rules, all of the taboos. He just kind of sweeps away, and he reaches out to this woman that other people will ignore. I really pray that we'll be that kind of people. You ever guilty of that? Never guilty at looking at somebody who doesn't quite look like you do. They don't quite smell like you do. They kind of maybe have a sordid past, and you don't really want to defile yourself by associating with them. Oh, you would never say that, would you? You would never say that because in our particular world that we're living in right now, that would not be politically correct. But you know deep down in your heart, I know for a fact that sometimes I do that internally. I think that I'm just a little bit better than them. I don't really have anything in common with them, and so I ignore that particular person. And I will tell you that in the uh, culture that we're living in, in the community that we're living in, we better get over that as Christ followers. We better have a desire to reach out to people that Jesus loves, people that God created and he put on this planet, and for whatever reason, he decided to have our paths cross with one another. Let's have that kind of ministry. Let's not ignore anyone who God sovereignly places in our path while we're on this journey that we call life. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is very deep, 100 to 200 feet deep, actually. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? 
Here's what you need to understand. In Jewish uh, speech, the phrase living water meant water that was flowing, like from a river or from a stream, as opposed to water that was stagnant, uh, as in a cistern or as in a well. Living water obviously was considered uh, to be better. And therefore, when Jesus said to this woman that he was going to give her living water, the, the woman quite naturally thought of a stream. She didn't think of a well. She didn't think of a, of a cistern. And she wanted to know where Jesus had found that. And from the tone of her remarks, it's evident that she uh, thought his claim was actually kind of blasphemous, that he would say that he had this kind of water. For it was a claim to have done something greater than her ancestor Jacob had been able to do, and that's why they were at that particular well that day on Jacob's land. Had Jacob been able to find a stream like that where you could drink from and you would never thirst again, he would have never taken the time to dig a well that was roughly 100 feet deep. That was the level to which the woman was thinking. It kind of reminds you of last week in Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, doesn't it? How can I be born again? Can I enter in the second time into my mother's womb? Is that really possible? She's having the same type of reaction. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of the water will thirst again. Of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now you've never seen a well where the water is springing up. Have you? You've seen a well where water is sitting there but never springing up. Only the water in a spring springs up, right? Thereby the term springs. It goes up. The water in a well just lies there. And so Jesus is not talking about a well. The woman had come to a well and Jesus invited her to a spring. I think it's very interesting, by the way, in the text that Jesus comes to the well and Jesus is the one that's thirsty and asks for water. And now Jesus kind of totally turns the tables and it's her that he's saying spiritually, you are thirsty, you are destitute, you're the one that needs spiritual water. And now he adds that if she allows him to place this spring within her, the spring will never cease but will continue to bubble away forever. One commentator wrote this. I want to read this to you. Imagine, if you will, that you have just purchased a piece of property on which you're going to build a house. There's water on the property. If the water is in a well, the water will give you no trouble. If you're there with your bulldozers to clear the ground for your house, all you have to do is push some dirt into the hole, and the well will be gone forever, so far as you're concerned. It's entirely different, however, if the source of the water on your property is a spring. Try to do the same thing as you did with the well. You push some dirt over the spring, and it seems to be gone, but at 5 o'clock, when you come back, the workmen go home. The next morning when the workmen come back, the stream will be there again, having simply pushed away the ground. A well can be covered. A spring seeps through anything that you may place over it. Very important in this text, isn't it, to understand that. A big difference between a well and a spring. And Jesus is saying, you need to experience this spring. Because when you experience this, there's no way that you can cap over it. See, that's what happens when you have a, a legitimate, realistic, authentic encounter with Jesus. Not just a well experience. If you have a well experience, you push dirt over it, it's all gone. 
That may be an experience that you had at a vacation Bible school or at a camp or some emotional experience during a very difficult time in your life. But when you experience Jesus like a spring, you can't cap that. This is what Jesus is saying. He's promising to place a spring within the life of anyone who will come to him. The spring will be eternal. It will be joyous and, 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 and it will be free. But he's also warning her that you'll never be able to bulldoze this. You'll never be able to stop it. In fact, one author said it this way. We try, of course. He said, I've done it myself. I know of many who have believed in Christ but have come to a place in their lives where his way seems inconvenient and they've tried to stifle his presence by piling some foreign substance over the spring. Some have said, I'm glad that I'm saved, but I'm going to live my life my own way while I'm young. I paid too much attention to my religion in my youth. Now I'm just going to cover it up. So they try, but instead of succeeding, they discover that God just comes bubbling through. Because that's what happens when you have an authentic relationship with Jesus. Let's see how this woman responds. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I'll not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. It kind of reminds you again of Nicodemus. And Jesus is going, you just don't get it. You still don't get it. You don't understand. She's still missing the point. And yet you'll remember that much of the Old Testament is filled with the uh, pictorial religious language revealing the thirst that our soul has, a thirst that can only be satisfied with, by God. However, this woman understands Christ's words again, and she takes them literally, and she's saying, if there's such a place that has that kind of water, tell me so I don't have to come here day after day after day. You think about it. Those of you that were in Kenya a few weeks ago, and you know these, these women walk for hours in some cases to go and get water. And she knows that day after day after day, she has to go and she has to, to get this water for herself and for her family. And now somebody's saying to her, I'm going to show you where there's this spring. And if you drink of the water there, you're never going to thirst again. And she says, show me. Because I'm thinking I'll never miss my afternoon soap operas again. I will be right there. No DVR necessary. I'll be there because I'll be able to cut this totally out of my schedule. Show me where this spring is. If there's such a place as that, then I want to know where it is. Now, if you share your faith with people regularly, and I know some of you do, you know how frustrating it can be when you're explaining something and it's not understood. I, I remember when I was a youth pastor uh, sharing uh, Jesus with a girl uh, one night, and I was telling her that she, she had everything together on the outside, and she was doing all the right stuff. Now, but, but, but Jesus was missing in her life. And I said, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like having this Ferrari, this bright red Ferrari with tan leather seats and a tan convertible top and the, the big wheels. Every guy out there is going, yeah, I know that car. And it's kind of like having a car like that and sitting down in it and turning the key and it doesn't start. And you, you pop the hood and you go and you look under the hood and there's no engine. And she kind of looked at me. he's saying and I'm looking at her going that that was an awesome illustration actually <laughs> in fact she would tell in her testimony about a year later at a camp she would talk about how pastor Brian told me this and he told me about this car and I didn't have a clue what he was talking about I'm going that's not such a good testimony well, you know you're saying you didn't understand anything that the pastor said but somehow somehow God makes sense of it through the Holy Spirit and he identifies who he is to a person. 
And that's what's taking place here. I take great comfort that here Jesus is sharing this analogy and he's going, this is what you need. You know, we're by the well. You need living water. You need a spring. And she's going, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. I take comfort in that. In fact, Paul said that the natural man doesn't receive the things of God. Paul said to the church at Corinth, in fact, that those things are, are really considered to be foolishness to those that are without Christ. And just like Nicodemus, she doesn't seem to understand the analogy that Jesus is using. And so at least she has an excuse, though, right? I mean, she's just a woman at a well. Nicodemus was a, a religious teacher of teachers. And so Jesus is going to try another angle. Look at verse 16. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. <laughs> the woman answered and said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said to her, you're correct when you said, I have no husband. Verse 18, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you've said truly. Jesus' words at that particular moment, don't miss it because it's Sunday morning and you stayed up too late last night. Don't miss it. Jesus' words at, those particular mo at that particular moment must have rocked this woman's world. What does she do? How does he know about this? How does he know about me? Notice that she tried to tell Jesus a half-truth. You're right. Um, I, I don't have a husband. You ever done that? I, I can always tell when somebody that I'm counseling with, or in fact, at times in my own life, when I am still walking in rebellion because I tell half-truths, I admit half-truths. Let me say this to you this morning. Here's the surest way, parents of teenagers, to know that your kids really get it when they're totally 100% honest with you. Husbands, wives this morning, if you've had trouble in your marriage, uh, you'll know that your spouse really gets it and reconciliation has begun when you and they are totally honest, when you don't tell half-truths. In fact, I say it this way typically, that when somebody says, well, yes, I did, but, if yes, you did, but, you don't really think you did. And that's what this woman is doing. I don't have a husband. And Jesus calls her out on it. You're right. You're correct. You don't have. He's not your husband. But you've had five of them. And the one that you're living with right now, you're living with in an immoral relationship. <laughs> How about that? That's what I would have done. That isn't what Jesus did. He's the son of God. He just simply was able to speak truth and then just sit back. And Jesus sees right through, though, to her heart. He knows it all. And it's an amazing thing that he knows everything about us. And yet he pursues a relationship with us. If you knew everything about you and you were the son of God, would you pursue a relationship with you? I wouldn't. I told somebody just this week, it, it, it is an amazing thing to think that the God of the universe knows everything about me. He knows every thought that I had yesterday, every thought that I've had since I've woken up this morning. He knows everything about that. And in spite of that, he loves me. And he not only loves me, but he pursues a relationship with me. And not just an immoral Samaritan woman or a teacher of religion like Nicodemus. He pursues a relationship with people like me and you, even though he knows everything about us. That's an incredible thing. Here's the good news of this particular text, that, that you and I are not so messed up that he can't come into our lives and radically change them. 
I don't know of a person in the room this morning that, that would say, uh, I've had five spouses, and the one that I'm living with now is not my spouse. Let me just tell you, if God can change the heart of this woman, if he can change her eternal destiny, if he can plant within her a spring of living water, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter where you've been, who you've been with. You can't say to me, if you knew what I've done, if you knew who I really am, well, I don't know that, but I know who does. And yet I know he pursues a relationship with people like you and me. He knows it all. Now she begins to get it. In fact, Jesus himself, you know, in Mark chapter 2, we say this around here from time to time. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners, Jesus said. So if you're here this morning and you have a sordid past, or maybe even a sordid present, good news. You're amongst people that also have sordid past. We are also messed up people. And that's why Jesus came. He came to reach out. He came to minister. He came to save sinners. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. None of us are healthy. We're sick. That's why we need a Savior. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Duh. You know? If I'm Jesus, I look at her and go, what was your first clue? The fact that I know that you're living with a man who's not your husband and you've had five other husbands? That's not how Jesus responds. Not at all. By calling him a prophet, though, she affirmed that his knowledge of her sordid lifestyle was accurate. And no longer would she attempt to hide her sin, but rather this constituted a statement of confession, which meant she was willing to turn from her sin, hoping to receive the water of eternal life. And look what she says in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman... Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You'll worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship, Father, worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worship, worshipers. Now, there is a lot of doctrinal content in these particular verses, and I know some of you just looked at your watch and went, uh -huh. All right, this is going to get long. Well, it's not this morning. Let me just say this, bottom line. The bottom line is a relationship with Jesus is not about religion. It is not about you going to church and going through the right motions and somehow you please God. It's not even about where you worship, how you worship. It's, it's not about that. It's about a relationship with Jesus. And here's a side note just for some of you, uh, just a little lesson in theology when we use the terminology that, well, I was seeking after God. Let me tell you this, God's not lost, <laughs> okay? He's not lost out there in the woods going, oh, somebody please find me. He's, he's not doing that. You and I are the ones that are lost. And what does he do? He came to seek and to save those that are lost. We don't seek him on our own. He uses his spirit to draw us to himself. So often in testimonies I hear that, you know, I just, I just felt this way. I, I don't know what it was. I do. It was the Spirit of God. 
Demo last week when he shared his testimony. I'll never forget the night he trusted Christ as a Savior. And I wanted to give him just one more opportunity to think about these things a little, a little more. And I remember the night he put his fist just like this and he said, No, I must do it tonight. And you kind of sit back and go, Well, that was the Spirit of God. It was drawing him to himself. We don't seek him on our own. She's basically saying, so what should I do then? You're right. I have a problem. Where do I get that taken care of? Verse 24, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I love her response in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. She was still confused, but she expressed her hope that one day the Messiah who's coming, the the Samaritans also anticipated, that once he came, he would clarify all these things that she didn't understand. Then verse 26, it has to be like the pinnacle verse in the text. Look at verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What? Here she is. She came to the well that day. She came at noon because nobody was supposed to be there. All the other women gossipers and all the people that didn't want anything to do with her weren't there. She just wanted to get her water and go home. And here's this Jew that she meets, and he starts talking to her. And before too long, he wants water from her. And then he's telling her that she needs a spring. And she doesn't understand that. She doesn't know. And then he says to her, you're not married to the man that you're living with, and you've had five other husbands, and now all of a sudden, in verse 26, he says, I who speak to you am he. I'm that Messiah that you're looking for. I'm here. I'm that one. Wouldn't you have just, I'd pay money to have been there to see that. And man, if somebody would have been there with an iPhone, with a video camera, and they could have taken a little bit of footage of that, how much would that be worth today? She's blown away that any Jew would be talking to her. And now she finds out that it's not just any Jew. This is Jesus. This is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Isn't that cool? Verse 27 kind of caps it off really well. At this point, his disciples came. They were amazed that he'd been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? See, they'd learned their lesson. They go, I don't want to go on that long dinner hike again. So I'm just going to quit asking stupid questions. But you had to believe that at that particular moment, don't you think, that they're going, oh, he is so in trouble now. Does he know she's a Samaritan? And I think I've heard about that woman. She's living with a guy that's not her husband, and she's had five other husbands. Does he know this? But the text says, I love it. He doesn't ask any questions. They don't even ask, why do you speak with her? Verse 28, so the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? It's pretty obvious that her encounter with Jesus changed everything. In fact, if you were to read uh, down, uh, we don't have time this morning, but in verse 39 and, and following, you'll see, that the Samaritans begin to understand that this Messiah is he. And and you can imagine that some Samaritans are coming to faith in Jesus and what that's doing to the 
to the to the believers, right? To the disciples. They're going, oh, we're not supposed to associate with them. Now they're my brother and my sister. And Jesus is telling me, that's another sermon. But you know that her life has been transformed. It's been changed. Radical change because of her encounter with Jesus. For many of you this morning, one day you're going to realize, if you haven't already, that the things that this world has the things that this world has to offer, they really don't satisfy. They really don't. You're going to find out, just like Nicodemus did, that simply keeping religious rules and pious, false humility doesn't satisfy. You're going to find out sooner or later that living a lifestyle like this Samaritan woman will never, ever, ever satisfy. And you say, well, I would never live that lifestyle. I don't take it for granted that in the culture that we're living in that there is not immorality that's right here represented in this room this morning. No, sure, the world will scream to you that it does. It'll satisfy you. High school guys, you can just have that girl, or not that girl, but those girls. If you can just have those sexual encounters, man, that's, that's where it's really at, and that will satisfy you. And well, let me tell you, for a moment, it does. If it doesn't, it wouldn't sell, right? For a moment, it does satisfy, but in the end, in the end, it leaves you empty. It leaves you wanting more. And why is that? Because we were created to be in a relationship with Jesus. And the gospel, which is that God loved you so much and me so much that he sent his son Jesus to walk on this planet and to do life with people in ministry for three years and then three years later to give up his life as a, as a payment for the sin debt that we owed that we couldn't possibly pay on our own. And then three days later, he rose victoriously from the grave, conquering sin and death. And as a result of that, our sin debt can be paid in full. That gospel message, let me say to you this morning firmly, it changes everything. An encounter with Jesus brings us into a relationship with him that will satisfy eternally. Why is that? Because we no longer are slaves to our sinful nature. We're freed from the sins that, that have a hold on me. And for the first time, because we're free, we're capable of living the life that we were created to live and to bring glory to the one who created us. And that's why we sing the song that we sang last week, Jesus, you're the well that won't run dry. You're the drink that satisfies. You're the living water. You're the spring of life. I could cover over a well and never see it anymore, but the spring of life, it will just keep gushing and gushing and gushing, and it doesn't matter what you do to try to cover it up, it will eventually find its way to the surface again because that is the kind of relationship that Jesus came in order that we might have with him that we were created to have. A satisfying relationship. It's not about who I am, it's about who he is. And as the Samaritan woman found out, and I think you and I will find out as well, it's not about what we've done. It's about what he's done. And to come into an encounter with Jesus Christ as your Savior, as Kelly said this morning, is for everything to change. Well, does that mean you don't have any problems after that? Kelly, why don't you stand and testify? Oh, I've never had any problems since. No. No, but he's the drink that satisfies. 
He's the well that won't run dry. The spring of living water that just keeps bubbling up. If you're here this morning and for whatever reason you're not satisfied, let me suggest to you that it could be because you've never experienced a true, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. You've never really encountered him as your Savior. And as I pray this morning, if that's you, I would ask you just to pray along with me. And as this Samaritan woman that day, admit, yes, you are God. Yes, you do love me. Yes, you did send Jesus to pay a sin debt that he didn't know in order that I might come into a relationship with him. And I trust in you alone as the Savior from my sins. And be free this morning. And come into a relationship with your creator and enjoy the relationship that you were created to have. You pray that prayer even as I pray this morning. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful today for your word. I am so thankful for (laughs) the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I thank you that we have a record of at least a certain portion of your ministry here on this planet. And I am so encouraged this morning as a pastor, as a shepherd of people, to be able to cite these biblical examples of lives that were transformed and they were changed for eternity because of their encounter with Jesus and with the gospel. God, I pray for the high school guy or for uh, the man or the woman this morning, student that is so unsatisfied. They're, they're trying everything that the world has to offer, and for whatever reason, they're, they're dry. God, I pray that you would convince them by your Holy Spirit that it is coming into a relationship with Jesus that changes everything. We pray we'll see that happen this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Jesus, you're the well that won't run dry. And Jesus, you're the drink that satisfies.
in our hearts and pour out living water for those who need to hear it this week. Thanks for coming this morning. Have a great day.